to the Easy Peasy Podcast, where we discuss living better through permaculture, mindfulness, decentralization, freedom, flow, agorism, anarchy, and more. We'll discuss how to solve life's complex problems with simple solutions. This is Mike the Polymath coming from the Easy Peasy Workshop in Indianapolis, Indiana, the crossroads of America. Thanks for joining. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to episode 102 of the Easy Peasy Podcast. You know, yesterday I went out and worked for my largest client, we'll say my most valuable client. You know, the only client I have that basically tripled their membership. Whereas most of my clients pay 500 a year, they paid 1500 so that I would be more available to them, more visits through the season. And they've got quite the garden. You know, a dozen raised beds, some in-ground, you know, sort of traditional beds, and a pretty sizable greenhouse. And I knew it needed some work, right? It's about time to kind of clean up the outdoor beds, you know, winterize, and uh, transition the greenhouse into winter production mode. And me and her were out there kind of working side by side. She, she really likes to learn along the way and ask questions and you know she got a lot of food this year but she's still very insecure as a gardener right questioning whether or not something is a weed or or not you know and she's starting to get instincts you know she'll ask is that a weed and almost every time yeah that's a weed you know it looks kind of out of place doesn't it and uh so she's getting better little by little and she's kind of gotten to know me better along the way too right and we chat as we work so we're out there we're harvesting the last of the tomatoes and peppers and and she at one point she says to me you know you might laugh at this but I was picking you know, we were digging the uh, the potatoes, she was saying. Her and her two daughters, she said, you know, a couple weeks ago we were digging the potatoes, harvesting them, and I had a thought as we were doing it that, you know, she says that this is what we're supposed to be doing. And I knew just what she meant by that. 
And I said, I would never laugh at that. You know, I think that's a very astute observation. It's kind of profound. And I agree, this is what we're supposed to be doing. You know, we're we're meant to be horticultural creatures. We're meant to be in nature, working within it and and gardening it. And it just it it that statement of this is what we should be doing, or this is what we're supposed to be doing. I I thought it was as true as anything I've ever heard. You know, I've I've said before that human beings were not hunter gatherers so much as hunter gatherer gardeners. You know, they carried plants from camp to camp. They selectively bred over time. You know, eventually getting into the the selective breeding of animals, but that's about the time we crossed over from a horticultural society to an agricultural society. And you're going to hear more about that later on. Um, you know, I did an interview on my friend Tom's show, and I haven't gotten the audio yet, but I'm gonna, and I think I'm just going to tag it on to this episode here because I think it all fits, you know, and a large part of what him and I were discussing was sort of the, um, the differences between agriculture or agriculture and, and horticulture or permaculture. But that spiraled into a whole nother discussion where we kind of dove into the idea of duality. And these seem like kind of isolated topics, right? But they're not. You know, it's all interconnected here. And I got a message from my from my friend Brianna. Um, she was at Self-Reliance Fest. She was on the show a while back with TJ, her friend. Um, and she she talked about like nonviolent parenting. And um, anyway, she sent me some thoughts earlier. And I'm going to see. Hopefully this sounds okay. I'm going to. I'm playing them through my phone because she sent these as voice memos on Instagram. So bear with the sound quality, but I, I thought these were some interesting observations or questions. So here we go. Okay, I'm just going to send you a little voice clip because that would be easier than typing because sometimes when I'm typing, I can't. I, I don't know what happens to me, but when I type it out, it just sounds, it's just all off. Anyways, I was remembering when you had me and TJ on for a podcast, and I brought up that I felt like our minds and, like, our IQs have shifted. Or maybe I didn't mention specifically IQs, but definitely the way that we're able to think about things these days has changed, in my opinion. I think people have advanced in, in their abilities to think in some ways, but then again, like the generations below me are seemingly getting very stupid just from food and from everything. School instruction, public school instruction, you know, a plethora of other things. 
But I noticed that you mentioned in your uh, interview with Niti that that you think when people bring up their opinion that people have advanced so much and that they're able to think more these days, you disagree and you kind of push back on it a little, which I understand. I think in a lot of ways we're very retarded. Like, I'm, and I mean that in the literal sense of the word. Like, I think that we've lost our connection to our ancestral ways of, you know, eating and communicating and um, bringing people together, the connection that we had. But I do also believe that we're living in a totally different time now since the Industrial Revolution happened. I think women have totally shifted in their appreciation towards men, like Niti mentioned, and like a lot of women of self-reliance are kind of noticing that we're lacking respect for men. But I think this is a whole problem. I think it's a male and female problem. I think that we do have a lot more time on our hands now um, that we've made all these advancements and we're probably never going to go back to a primitive way of living again. So how do we do that? How do we... How do we live in a society that has these advancements and also bring back some old ways? And how do we how do we have connections with people in a voluntary way? Because I think we've always lived in a society that was not voluntary, that was always very forceful. And even though I enjoy like the communal aspects of, you know, the old ways, I think that it's different now the way our brains are set up so i don't know how, how do how do we do it differently now how do we connect with each other like marriage divorce rates are very high and i think there's a lot of reasons for that but i think part of it is just because we don't really know how to have connections with our spouse anymore because i think in the past it wasn't exactly voluntary because we were so busy, like there were so many things to do that you just kind of bonded with your partner over that. But now that we have more free time on our hands, advancements have, have given us more time to think and uh, be alone with our hobbies and stuff like that. We have to just bond with people through these ways, through hobbies and things like that. So that was a series of little voice memos and I'm grateful for them. Um, you know, like I said, some interesting thoughts there, but the one thing I'll push back on is this idea that we have more free time than our ancestors had. And, you know, I don't have the, um, sort of papers in front of me, but I know that it's been asserted at least, you know, from anthropology, uh, sociology that hunter gatherer cultures actually enjoyed more free time than we do. They might have worked harder for certain seasons, but then they'd have long periods of rest and relaxation. This is why we have, you know, the the petroglyphs of the desert southwest. These people had, you know, time on their hands. So I'll push back a little bit on on her statement there. 
And this this conversation kind of ties in with what's coming with you know my conversation with Tom. And I don't want to spoil anything, but I guess I'm just trying to drive home like I think it's th- this question or this this statement brought up by my client of this is how we're supposed to be. This is what we're supposed to do. She hit on something pretty, pretty huge there because, you know, Brianna's question was, how do we, how do we tap into this, this way of being, this flow of connection with nature and of, you know, sort of living as our biology would prefer? Well, we do it a little bit at a time. You know, and gardening's a huge way. But I told my client, I said, you know, yeah, you just, you know, you start fishing and hunting and doing a little bit of foraging and you'll be a full-fledged human again. I said this to her. And this is a lady that, you know, her and her husband and her kids, they live in a mansion. Okay? They have all the comforts in the world. But she has grown you know, to really enjoy the struggles of gardening. I get more texts from her than any other client asking things about, you know, this, that, and the other. And it's fun. It's fun. But I think that might be a good place to kind of stop and switch into the conversation with Tom and I. And then maybe I'll provide a few thoughts after the fact. But uh, we'll play it by ear. So Cool, man. Good to see you again. You too, Michael. It's been a minute. Uh, Michael is Whistler is kind enough to have me on his podcast on a more than one occasion. And yeah. I'm finally starting to do some interviews on, for my YouTube channel. And he was kind enough to come along and, and be actually, you're actually the inaugural interview. Sweet. I appreciate it. It's an honor. So um, we'll, we'll jump into it relatively quickly. There's a few sort of lines we might explore. Um, when the last time I was on your podcast, we actually sort of on the latter end of the uh, interview, sort of circled around a controversy of sorts around uh, the role of technology in agriculture, ecology, and all that, and mm-hmm. scale technology. And I think drones in particular, you you were kind of excited about a particular drone modality and that elicited a kind of hesitation in my person. So You're maybe, reminding me. Yeah, it's been a little while. But yeah, can, now that you say all that, I remember, I remember what we were talking about. Yeah. Yeah, we can revisit that. But, but maybe just to open up, you know, you are involved, engaged in permacultural practices, which from where I stand are really simply agricultural practices, but require the designation permacultural because of kind of unfortunate differentiation from Mm -hmm. what they involve and what is involved by contrast with large scale so-called industrial agriculture. Um, so, I mean, I could just start firing off myself, but let me just 
hem myself in and you know turn it over to you and maybe just open with that broad blanket question about permaculture what distinguishes it from industrial from, from ag from, how does it emerge as a historically distinctive mode of agriculture okay i like the way you phrased it there yeah so first and foremost permaculture is inherently horticultural and it goes beyond horticulture or agriculture or animal husbandry um it's it's more as cheesy as it sounds holistic okay so agriculture and i just stop you right there sure just for the sake of really my own embarrassing my own edification and perhaps Mm -hmm. that of the audience as well go ahead and uh, flesh out even in just a summary manner the distinction between say what is agriculture versus what is horticulture Mm -hmm. what is animal husbandry those are obviously defining subsets of practice but and i think that their meaning is more or less transparent but sometimes uh, a a distinction while subtle um may um well the distinction way while straightforward might have a subtle import later on down the line in that conversation so you could you do that as well yeah so thank you in a nutshell agriculture the etymology of the word agriculture it's the culture of fields okay um and it basically it manifests itself as such we have these massive monocrops right we have huge fields of corn soybeans you know fill in the blank but we tend to you know plant broad acres in a single crop um you know it might be a apple orchard you know acres and acres of nothing but apples there might be 20 different varieties of apples but there's only apples and that is agriculture okay that's the cultivation of fields horticulture is the cultivation of plants and you know diverse plants so horticulturists uh like in in sort of the more contemporary educational spheres like i have a friend that went to Purdue University and studied horticulture with a with a focus in turf management. So he's he works for golf courses as a greenskeeper, which is technically horticulture. You know, to me it almost looks like the culture of fields, but turf management there's there's quite a bit to it. And it's a subset by some people's standards of horticulture. But when I think of horticulture, I think more about um, like botanical gardens, uh, you know, master gardener courses, even though I kind of scoff at the term master gardener, um, you know, you wouldn't call yourself a master poet or a master philosopher. Right. Um, right. And I think gardener, you know, gardener should be given the same level of dignity and respect. But um, that's a that's a horticultural endeavor, taking these kind of courses where you're not learning to grow a crop, you're learning to grow a garden, right? So it's gardening versus what we might think of as farming. But the beauty of permaculture, so permaculture is meant as a um, can what do you call it? Con- contraction, I guess, of permanent and culture. Okay, yeah. where. An elision. 
it's is that what you is that what you'd call words together right or it's an elision uh, combination and elision it's a portmanteau okay when you take two words and put them together to form one word yeah sure portmanteau elision but go on well hey i appreciate you educating me my fancy pants on because it's not a contraction there's no apostrophe t or whatever yeah, a contraction is also a kind of elision. Is that right? All right. Well, you're, there you go. You're you lighting a syllable. So well, we're we're talking about the importance of words here. So this is fine by me. We can flesh this yeah, shit out so too. I'm already uh, sort of bubbling, right? Because right from the get-go, the concept of horticulture uh-huh. already suggests a different conceptual relationship to the plant. Than the concept of agriculture, as, as you set it out. I would say almost you could turn what you just said around on its head, where agriculture, you have a more intimate relationship with one plant. With horticulture, with um, sort of broad view gar- gardening, right? Not, not farming, but gardening. If we're going to use these kind of words in their typical sense um in order to understand gardening you need to have a more broad spectrum view and that's not to take away from you know the typical farmer that raises corn and soy because they're typically highly intelligent highly capable uh, very knowledgeable people in their craft Uh, but it's a very sort of narrow scope if you're only focusing on raising a handful of crops versus you know, with permaculture, with horticulture, we're widening our view. It's way more of an ecological view. So you could also compare it to the fields of biology versus ecology or, um, you know, there's a thousand different fields within the natural sciences, we'll say, but ecology is a sort of all encompassing field studying the complex relationships in nature right? It's studying the systems at play, the ecosystems and permaculture sort of directly um, comes out of the ecological uh, sort of awakening where the the field of ecology first kind of started. And it really wasn't that long ago. We're talking in like the 50s, 60s, 70s, where this this term of ecology as a new science kind of came about uh, it, you know, it kind of took from the fields of biology, of climate science, you know, whatever you want, meteorology, you know, geology, hydrology, you know, blah, 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 all of them. Ecology tried to see the connections as opposed to being so reductionist. Um, you know, I think agriculture is highly reductionist, right? Versus horticulture, you know, you're trying to figure out how to fit a hundred different plants into one ecosystem as opposed to one plant into a vast ecosystem. So my temptation is to, my, my, the impression I would, I have is that mm-hmm. horticulture and, and permaculture more generally, though they have a, as you noted, a, a, on one level, a, a, a recent uh, emergence, say from like the mid 20th century forward. Um, in fact, and maybe this is me being mesmerized by a certain romanticism, 
strike me as more in line with uh, practices which antedate, which predate, which come before our own sort of civilizational moment. Mm -hmm. And my temptation is to say that what we designate as agriculture actually itself is more recent in a, in a structural way. It's not necessarily yes. that much more recent because obviously that didn't start in like 1700. Certainly agriculture was a medieval practice, you know, and even perhaps in, uh, you can, you know, I don't know how far back you can push agriculture. I'll tell you, I'll tell you about, about 10,000, 20,000 years at most. Okay. And the human species has been on this planet for, they debate it minimum 250,000 years, possibly more. Right. If I'm not mistaken, you know, no, there's yeah, a good chance we've been range, but minimally that there's a good chance we've been here for half a million years. I, so I've even heard some people suggest further back than that. But I mean, you know, the reality is when you get that far back, it's really hard to say. So we have this, I think we have this broad sort of misconception of what hunter gatherer means. I I think it'd be better to say hunter gatherer gardener uh, because I, I guarantee, you know, for a big, big portion of our existence as a species, we not only hunted and gathered, but we also cultivated plants and carried them with us and propagated and selected and, you know, carved out sort of landscapes around us. I guarantee it you know, for a very, very long time. You know, for just for example, I know that North American, you know, natives apparently in, in this area, in sort of the Midwest, they would carry the the best shoots of elderberry from camp to camp because elderberry is a very easily propagated, uh, easily carried. You know, you take a little a little root and you put it in your pouch and you carry it to the next camp. And so all these sort of patches of elderberry were planted. They were not necessarily. I mean, it's it's a fine balance between oh, yeah. wild and and cultivated forest management and things like that i mean there's a lot of misconception when it comes to what this continent was when europeans arrived it was not as untamed as they imagined they just couldn't see it for the for the landscape that it was but you know the idea of permaculture you know, the sort of originator of the idea was this guy, Bill Mollison, and he studied indigenous cultures and tried to synthesize the similarities, right? The, the common characteristics, the common values. And he came up with basically as concise as he could make it 12 principles. And he called them, you know, the principles of permaculture. And it was, you know, based on these cultures that have existed for thousands of years, relatively, you know, stable. And so, you know, I got into an argument with somebody not, not so long ago on my show where they just, they had this like pretty basic understanding of what permaculture was about, but not, you know, even the slightest grasp on the, the origin of it or the history of it, who came up with it and how, and 
you know, so so I this this analogy springs to mind. Bill Mullison. Yeah. Uh huh. You could say he's the is uh, Bruce Lee is to martial arts. Bill Mullison is to horticulture, and permaculture is the Jeet Kune Do. <laughs> I see. I see what you're getting at, and yeah, I mean, in, in a sense, his goal was to take these these cultures and um, take what he could learn from them and, and make it um, digestible, digestible to the common person, you know, to the common English speaking Westerner and beyond. So 12 principles that are relatively, you know, you read them and you're kind of like, well, they take some, some, um, pondering and some understanding but they're very simple at their core you know so just like i'll try to rattle a handful off but like capture and store energy so that could apply a thousand different ways but it often in a permaculture sense refers to catching rainwater and storing it uphill so we have gravity pressure to water with our you know with our uphill storage tanks it might mean solar electricity it might mean you know, storing fuel reserves in case you need them. Uh, you know, it's kind of this, you know, there's like a prep prepper kind of mindset with permaculture um, because, you know, what else I'm, I'm thinking about uh, slow and spread water. So aside from storing water as energy, when we release it, we want to spread it out across the landscape, you know, and this is why earthworks are super important with permaculture Usually when you're applying like a permaculture designer's you know, lens to a landscape, the very first thing you do is you bring in an excavator and you know, a lot of people would turn their noses up at you and say, oh, you don't know, you know, you're just causing erosion. No, the whole point of these earthworks is to stop erosion. Okay. So we, we carve what are called step back to take two steps forward. Yes. So we disturb the soil first, which may or may not necessarily be a good thing in an ecological sense. It depends on the disturbance. Uh, so in, in ecology, you know, basically a disturbance is an opportunity for change. Anytime you know a lightning strikes or a you know forest fire rips through or an earthquake happens, trees come down, all this disturbed soil becomes hospitable to new types of life. You know, good, bad, it's it's not for us to say. But when it comes to applying a permaculture designer's sort of handbook on a landscape, we love to start by taking anything that's got slope to it, which is everything. There's almost no such thing as a perfectly flat landscape, right? If you think about it, the rain falls, it hits the earth, and it if it doesn't get soaked up by plants it runs off the soil and it goes to the ocean and it takes the path of least resistance which over eons creates the rivers the canyons the the streams all the waterways that we see and i know i'm on a bit of a rant here no go go um i'm like talking myself out of breath but i'm getting at something point is in permaculture, we apply this concept of slowing and spreading water, this, this principle um, where we carve 
what's called a swale. Okay. A lot of people have heard the term swale. I don't know if you have or haven't, but it's basically a ditch, but it's a ditch on contour. Okay. And if you don't know the concept of on contour, it means it's level. It means it's level across. So, you know, we use our little for, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a carpenter partly in what I do. And I use a, a level and it's got a bubble in water. And that's because water wants to spread out across the contour line. So what we do is we dig this swale, which follows the contour line and it gives, you know, rainwater a place to slow down, to stop, kind of fill up in this berm. You know, if you drive through the suburbs anywhere, you'll see swales. They're just kind of hidden amongst the landscape, but it's to, it's to manage all the, all the storm water. So my point is we slow and we spread the water and we grow trees and shrubs and, and grasses and we graze animals in this environment. And we, you know, apply all sorts of different techniques um, there's, there's basically ways of growing food in a very passive way. Once you, once you get it established, these perennial based systems where it's fruit and nut trees feeding livestock animals, which feed us, you know, that's kind of the ultimate system that we can establish. And it's not so dissimilar from what the native Americans had. It's just they had more elbow room. There were less of them. And we have to do it in a very space-conscious way, if that makes sense. Yes, it, it, it's, it's perfectly coherent. The question that I have is I do believe that it's fair to assert contemporary industrial agriculture is relatively recent in its origin, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And That's what I was saying, about 10,000 years of but I'm saying broad-scale agriculture. Yeah, that's broad-scale, but mm-hmm. I had this impression, maybe I'm incorrect, that the way things operate now over the past two to three centuries, maybe let's say four centuries, let's say 17th century forward, um, I think there is a shift in farming practices away from even what was happening, you know, whether in the 13th century or, you know, in other parts of the world and so on and so forth, uh, with respect to um, broad deployment of mechanization. And also, I, my impression is that the movement toward monoculture is much more aggressive in the past or in recent centuries. Now, you can disabuse me of any error in that perception. I think you're generally on the right track. Um, At the same time, there has been monoculture going back for thousands of years. Uh, I mean, Mesopotamia, it was, it was wheat and, and cereals of various types, you know, Egypt, like they were growing huge fields of wheat, you know, Italy, you know, if you look at the Middle East and the and the sort of, I guess, Southern Europe, you know, near near the uh, Mediterranean, the reason it's so 
desertified is because it was heavily cropped for thousands of years. You know, it looks kind of barren now. It's because they used up their topsoil. That's why colonialism happened. <laughs> you know, they couldn't really support their own populations anymore because the agricultural systems were starting to to fail. This is my understanding, and I'm sure I'm not 100% accurate, but the, the general trend that I understand is that, you know, sort of agriculture remained relatively um, the same until the imp- implementation, like you said, of sort of mechanical advantage um, and, you know, internal combustion. That, that was the big thing. For generations, it was it was what can you do with an ox or a horse or a donkey, and then all of a sudden we had tractors, and shortly thereafter we had um, basically you know chemical fertilizer as a byproduct of the industrial you know the the military industrial complex. So the the agricultural industrial complex, the food industrial complex, is just a subset of of that where. After World War II, these chemical companies that were making all sorts of shit, you know, for bombs and everything, ammonium nitrate and blah, 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 they needed to keep selling their products. And so they figured out that they could take nitrogen and phosphorus and or nitrogen, potassium and uh, and phosphorus. Yeah. And. You know, put it on the fields and double their yields. Just horrifying to me to think of. How when you then what you're basically telling me is that uh, in order to sustain more or less a, a, an economic or a business model which was dependent on uh, military activity, they uh, rebranded the product as something which is serviceable to farming which means that yeah. there's almost like a conceptual indifference to whether or not it's actually beneficial to farmers over any long term. Obviously, it wouldn't have been used so widely if it didn't have some sort of uh, effect. But I mean, the implicit disjunction in terms of the origin and then its subsequent application to agriculture, I must say, is a is, uh, is, is philosophically troubling to me. Well, it's, it is actually a very interesting like question to ask one of these typical like chicken and the egg things, but um, really in America, at least in, in North America, we had a culture of small subsistence farmers for a very long time, which was a pretty good, you know, system agrarianism, you might call it, excuse me. And um, after, like I said, World War One, World War Two, you know, it, it became a much more mechanized culture. The Industrial Revolution was in the full swing, and and it, it didn't take long for us to get to the Dust Bowl. Yeah, because we started using, we started overusing the land. You know, with every other form of agriculture, at the very least. When they used up the soil, they recognized that they had used up the soil and they pillaged and plundered and went and found a new territory. You know, there was like a natural limit in Europe. And then as soon as 
colonialism happened and industrial agriculture happened. These were a positive feedback cycle that one fed the other as you could, as you could demand more from the land using sort of artificial means, you could overextend your, your but it's a natural, value. your, it's a your natural value. limits. Yeah. Because you can't actually overextend it. What you're doing is you're inevitably going to uh, lead to more, I'm guessing that leads ultimately to more rapid decline in the viability of the environment. That's like, entering permaculture, right? It's like cocaine. Cocaine makes you feel real good for a while and then diminishing returns and the eventual you know, withdrawal. The eventual withdrawal and that's what we're going through is a withdrawal you know or at least we're maybe about to go through um, so i mean that raises another set of questions which i'm gonna so uh okay i'm not gonna lose that point because it's a very important point but we kind of got off track slightly right um not really not really right because I was asking, I just we're laying the tracks as we're, we're, we're tracks, right. So permaculture <laughs> is conceived in, in the early '60s by Mollison, more like the '70s, six, 70s. late '60s. Yeah. So it's uh, it's sort of related to the emergence of ecology. Mm-hmm. Now, within ecology, you, you sometimes hear this distinction between social ecology and so-called deep ecology. Uh huh. So I I was about to actually bring up deep ecology. Uh, I'm impressed that you've heard about it, actually. Well, you know, where I have my sense of that distinction is from Murray Bookchin. Mm. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Bookchin. I've read some. I I know I have. He was an anarchist who was uh, important to early um, ecology and predominantly preeminently a social ecologist, where he notes by social ecology, that economic and then agriculture and horticultural uh, conditions are intimately connected to the conditions of society, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, The nature, there is no true pristine nature. There's a second nature, nature constructed. And there's no economy outside of ecology. Right, right. This is all connected. Mm -hmm. But he came to kind of, hostility toward what was called deep ecology because deep ecology became associated with a sort of aggressive, what I call philosophical misanthropy. Uh, Deep ecology wanted to negate human being as the problem, that Mm -hmm. we were the root of the... uh, environmental and ecological problems that began to emerge in the tw- and, and, and proliferate in the 20th century, late 19th century forward. And that what we really needed to do was just take the human being out of the equation. And I think that's a misrepresentation of deep ecology. Well, I mean, it's just, so, I mean, I'm not, I'm just, I'm asking. Possibly, I'm not possibly. asserting anything yeah. in an adamantine fashion. Maybe, you know, I suffer from a misconception. Well, it's not, it's not entirely a false representation in that there are people within that thought 
who definitely are misanthropic and who blame people. Um, I think so really it is a, it's a direct line of connection from, you know, the first ecologists to deep ecology, which was a more spiritualized and like radical view. Um, But to me, from what I studied, it, it really was a simple recognition of what, you know, it, it really boils down to two principles, deep ecology, radical interconnectedness and radical interdependence. And a lot of the sort of what I would say is maybe a slightly misguided doomsday minded environmentalist brain of the seventies and eighties were definitely drawn into the deep ecology sphere, but they didn't to me define it like deep ecology. When you, when you really got into it, you also recognize via sort of these permaculture ideas, which came from deep ecology. Um, You recognize that we may be a source of many problems, but we are also the greatest potential agent of change for improvement, right? We can degrade soil over generations and we can rebuild it over one, which is pretty cool. You know, by applying permaculture principles, we can undo hundreds of years, thousands of years of damage in a, in a couple, you know, decades. So it, to me, very optimistic. It, if you follow it to its logical conclusion, and it's funny how anarchism is folded in with a lot of these thinkers. It's like my favorite author was pretty misanthropic. I still love to read him, but Edward Abbey. Mm-hmm. He he monkey wrench gang. Say yeah, monkey wrench gang. He was in some ways credited with spurring this sect off from deep ecology, which they referred to as you know they self called you know they they referred to themselves as eco saboteurs. The media called them eco terrorists, right? But it was all kind of there was there was sort of a germination point well i think the affinity probably is uh, i mean the affinities are multiple the one that stands out to me most predominantly is the i would say the the, the intuition that no system should be trusted uh, even if it's a well intended system the very fact of its systemicity condemns it to failure. Reality exceeds all strict formulation. And uh, the only antidote to the limitation of system is the exercise of intelligence in the face of specific context. This, uh, of course, is a perspective which is inimical to hostile to adverse to established authority, which latter I would say almost needs system to legitimate its claim and uh, promulgate its claim. So it, it's, it, it follows that eco- ecological and anarchist principles will be closely 
knit mm-hmm. into each other. It's, I mean, it's a recognition of the inherent complexity and the inability to manage it all. Um, that's why I love how permaculture is just based on these simple principles that basically are, it's like little cheat codes of how can we, how can we work with nature, how it's already intended to, you know, to exist and sort of accelerate the productive capacity while simultaneously not only conserving soil, but building soil, actively building soil. You know, that's what it all boils down to because, you know, soil and water is life. And if we have, can I ask you, why is not like, when you say this stuff, I like, you should not, who's going to disagree with this. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. No one's, I mean, I don't, I, I can, I find it difficult to conceive of someone saying, hold on there. Whistler, your gospel <laughs> permaculture. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. And I, I just, because it all seems almost truistic to me. Like too good to be true, right? Not so much too good to be true as so commonsensical mm-hmm. as to defy the practices in any way controversial. So why so that so this is my question then why is not permacultural practice more broadly implemented than it is? Well, I'll turn the question on its head and say that it's becoming more like steadily. Uh, I, you know, it, it's, it's become apparent to me, um, you know, where I live, I drive North of Indianapolis and I'm starting to see swales in cornfields there. If you pay attention when you're driving on long, you know, highway stretches through the Midwest, you'll see these, these big ditches carved on contour and they stick out because the corn, you know, fields are still straight. And these are big sort of relatively like shallow swales Mm -hmm. so that the tractor can still kind of do its thing. But the principle is being applied of slow and spread out the natural rainfall because, you know, these cornfields over time develop these gullies, these washouts, these, you know, eroded waterways. And so farmers are waking up, you know, soil conservation is, it it is common sense stuff. Um, but it's, it's slow to be taken up fully on a broad sort of, um, basis because it's not immediately profitable. Right. Right. This is one of the big failings of, of capitalism in my mind, even though I don't view capitalism as a dirty word, I think it's been kind of sullied by corporate megalith, you know, monstrosities who wield our sort of natural uh, systems with the benefit of state power behind them. I'm off on a tangent here. I I know, but natural, like natural local capitalism, free trade, call it what you will, but sort of voluntary exchange with the use of money for goods and services when left to its own devices, when not manipulated by the you know military industrial complex, it it has these natural ways of solving problems and and creating the most efficient means of doing things on a local basis. 
I don't know if, if you're following me here, but. Well, I follow you as you might anticipate. I have some reticence about that character. Well, so let me finish the thought then, because yeah. my point is that if we had a less adulterated corporatocracy style of capitalism, if it was a more locally based economy, as it has been historically for generations, you know, for eons, we would be using more of these principles more immediately because they're very applicable to somebody trying to produce a lot on a small piece of land, relatively small. They're less applicable if you're interested in, in counting beans and, and using up the land as quick as you can for the quickest buck you can. Right. This, this like capitalistic in our, in our modern culture, um, this urge to always, you know, quarterly earnings have to always be going up, up, up. That doesn't account for the natural rhythms of nature, right? That is not pure. It is, it is an artificial like imposition of this goal that if we don't produce as much as we did last quarter, something's wrong, you know, everything's going to shit. It's like, no, some years you make a little more, some years you make a little less. Every farmer knows this, but mega corporations do not. So to try to balance the, the scales in their, you know, bean counter, little, you know, accountant workshops, they have to squeeze as much corn and as much soy out as they can year after year with no regard for the future. And it's dangerous. Well, yeah, I mean, it's dangerous. I mean, part of the challenge here is terminological. What does one mean by capitalism? Yeah, so, well, yeah. And, and you are, as I, as I hear you, going to suggest that um, this problem of scale is a corruption of capitalism. Whereas I would say it is a feature and natural outcoming of a specifically capitalist protocol. Now, when I say capitalist protocol, what I mean is the injunction that economic activity is driven by the disbursement of capital with the objective of reacquiring and then expanding that capital so that it can be dispersed again, reacquired and expanded again. And capital is a mode of uh, commodity which is epitomized in money. Uh -huh. So what you have in effect under this mode of production to use classically Marxist language is a circumstance where the relationship between the use value and the exchange value of any given common, uh, commodity is actually inverted in terms of its significance. So that food is no longer produced in order to feed people. That the food can feed people is a precondition, precondition of its sale, but one which is almost lamented by the capitalist. And I'm saying the conceptual capitalist, uh -huh. not like an actual person, right? The capitalist system is interested 
in the production of food and its sale only so that it can acquire more money. Well, you, because it is money. Because it right. is money. Money is the name of the game. There's Actually, a reason. There's a reason they love grains and and beans. They call them bean counters for a reason. I hope I'm not cutting you off. No, no, that's okay. I just wanted to distinguish a capitalist mode of production or mm -hmm. an economy from one where you just see um, small scale voluntary exchange. In fact, under capitalism, you retain an illusion of voluntary exchange, but it is in fact largely an illusion because what's driving the whole process is the uh, logic of the system, the logic of the exchange, not the logic of what people actually need. In an agora, you know, agorism, right? Mm -hmm, in an ancient mm -hmm. market, or you can still see it today in certain parts of the world, there's exchange, there's conversation, there's haggling, whatever, okay? But there's retained the primacy of human relationship. I mean, you can romanticize a little bit, but at, at the end of the day, part of the reason why what Africa didn't shut down during the madness is because their markets are closer to that to the model yeah. and aren't going to obey the dictates of some goddamn bond traders who want to suppress general demand so as to paper over their their sins, mm -hmm. right? Um, well, truly, I you know I believe in the agora. Right. And maybe my use of the term capitalism is, you know, it's like I mean, you're using it in a colloquial sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In an open ended way where but, I'm bringing a more technical definition to the table, which might seem a little stodgy. And if it does, I apologize. Well, it's I almost just see agorism as like the purest form of capitalism. And maybe again, like I'm I'm not as well read or well informed as some, but. You know, that's my definition that's of sort of there, right? I mean, free, free and open exchange, right? The Agora, let's use that word. Right. Um, like the biggest, I think, driver of these, these poor land management strategies is the crony connection between sort of the capitalist um, interests and, and the government power. If there was not that connection then things would rise and fall at a much more natural um, sort of progression and, and, yeah. and better practices would be found quicker. I mean, in terms of agriculture, they need to be found. They just need to be implemented. Implemented. We've, we've found the problem a, is our relationship with time under. Yes. But in terms of, and of, it actually it also, I'm sorry. I don't want to. It's okay. It's okay. I just want to point out one quick thing that also has to do with the project of modernity itself, the specific way in which science becomes configured yeah. by modernity as directed to the domination of nature. Yeah, you have my agreement there. To me, it, it's a cultural problem primarily where we've lost the, the, the value of looking forward seven generations. You know, we've forgotten that it's not just about you and it's not just about your kids. It's about your kids, 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 theoretically. And so, you know, in terms of economic philosophy, it all 
is secondary to me to like, you know, I've said before that I almost feel like um, anarchism's the philosophy, permaculture's the practice. Now, what the spiritual you know component of that is, I, I'm not quite sure. Maybe you can fill that blank in with whatever you so choose, but I think it, it requires like a third leg to that stool yeah. where it's like, you know, the understanding of the infinite co- complexity of, of systems, the recognition of anarchism, of, of agorism, of allowing, uh, allowing people to manage their own lives, just like you let any living natural wild animal manage its own life <laughs> in, a, in a free and open way yeah. you know, until the day comes where, you, you know, your interests outweigh your your respect for the, the, the squirrel or something that you want to eat or, you know, but I'm, I'm getting lost on something there. No, well, I mean, <laughs> but like nature is brutal. Together. Nature right. is brutal. That's what I, you know, it's brutal. It's beautiful. The, the balance of like, of it's not just tooth and claw and like predator prey. There's so much of what is known as mutualism, you know, <laughs> In terms of ecology, I try to, that's how, that's how I explain things is I try to go back to ecological principles in terms of ecology. There's really only three types of relationships in the natural world, predator, you know, predatory predation and mutualism. So it'd be, it'd be, um, you know, basically to say that if, if any two organisms are in a relationship, it's either beneficial to one and kind of like neutral to the other or negative to the other, or it's symbiosis of some kind. Mm-hmm. It's everybody wins. And that's even that's an oversimplification, but because there's always more than two species involved. Yeah. Because it's and a, web, it's, it's not a, it's not a string. Yeah. It's not a food chain. You know, whoever said the food chain, they were, they were limiting our, our thought. It's a, it's definitely a web a radical web. Um, but yeah, like I was saying, I guess I really do think we need some sort of like spiritual component to like guide our morality. Um, because it's not enough to have the philosophy and to have the practice. You've got to have like, it's not just the what and the how it's also the why. Right. We need something to, 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 to bring life into the equation. Because if it's, if it's, uh, it's if it's merely conceptual, you're going to have a hard time evoking the energy which is required, which is required to actually bring it into the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the missing term, like you said, is fundamentally transcendent, and mm-hmm. it, it strikes me after wise that what with what we're wrestling is the limitation of secularism. The, 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 the secular rejection of a transcendent element actually truncates our relationship with the world in its fullness. It, it only wants to relate to the world in terms which are amenable to quantification and control. Mm-hmm. Sort of material thought, material in in my objectivity. Re- in my reading, yeah, but uh, there, yeah. there is uh, 
and 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 in part it's 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 intensity and it's rejection of transcendence is is an outcome of the historical situation from which contemporary secularism arose where you had these uh, wars of religious strife as we are taught that stimulated an intense contempt for religiosity as fundamentally delusional and as propagating violence and bad ways of relating to the world. Of course, what that really is, is a very large problem of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. By rejecting the religious dimensions of human life in such a stalwart fashion, you have short-circuited the human capacity to relate with the, the world more broadly. Well, how do you do that? How do you reconnect to the question of transcendence? It's very hard at this moment because of how thoroughly we've been conditioned to uh, be secular. Even those of us who participate in a religious tradition are uh, often um, hamstrung by the impression that to, to assert something with religious conviction is to become as exposed as childish or silly or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's backward and superstitious. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a situation where I don't have a solution. It's, it's almost as if we have to wait for the solution to emerge on its own. And that is not an acceptable outcome, <laughs> right? It'd be great yeah, to yeah. Have to, like happen, okay? But there's an urgency to what is unfolding in the world at the moment. I was going to say, do you really even want that? Like, do you want a new religion to emerge? Because I don't can you even imagine? I wouldn't put it in those terms. Well, that's what it almost sounded like to but me, I, right? I, and that's a fair, that's fair that you say that. I suppose what I want is paradoxical because um, there's two things that I think you can drive from a, 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 a solid relationship with the transcendent. One, ironically, I say ironically, there's the two terms of humility and confidence. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Humility, because you realize how minuscule you are in the face of the cosmos, the cosmos, mm -hmm. just that it's big beyond the capacity of our mind to grasp. It's, it's more than merely big, right? It is infinite. But you also realize that you are a child of that infinite. Mm -hmm. And there's got to be something right about you. If you're here, you have a capacity to positively inform the unfolding of the infinite. Yeah, I know that sounds all woo-woo, right? But, oh, but I don't, it, that's, that's just where I am. And if it's woo-woo, so be it. I, what I really want is people to realize their radical self-sufficiency. That's what I want, Michael. Mm -hmm. But... Under a secular dispensation, a human being is just a collection of chemicals and electrical processes. And if that's what you're told you are, 
it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, at least, I mean, I guess I'm being a little unfair. And I will accept that I'm being a little unfair, a little polemical in my characterization. But I don't think it's far off the mark. Well, I'll be, I'll be honest, man. Like I I've been finding Christianity more and more interesting. You know, I was raised a Christian, but like just, just in certain ways and like, and I find Taoism, you know, Taoism to be very interesting too. Um, but like, I almost think, so hypothetically, let's say we need these three pillars. We need the philosophy, you know, the philosophy, the practice and the spirit. And that, that spiritual component I think can be filled in different ways, but I keep coming back to, to duality as like such a major unspoken and un, you know, like, like barely understood force of nature, right? Duality. I mean, do you, what do you mean by duality? I was going to ask if, so. yeah. So in my mind, like the, short sweet definition of duality is equal and opposite and that's a paradox right in my mind like how can something be equal and opposite but there's infinite examples you know maybe the most obvious one being a magnet you know they're one in the same it's a magnet it is one magnet but it's got two polar opposite sides with opposite charges conducting their own work right Mm -hmm. and so when i think of duality i think of like is polarity perhaps a better word no well polar polarity would be an example of duality but like man i i guess it's contrasted with dualism which is the assertion that there are two kinds of substances constituting the universe, but that's not what you mean. Well, maybe it is what I mean, man. Maybe it is what I mean. Like, I think it, I think the singular truth of our world, of our universe very well could be that there is duality in everything. And this is a concept that I've struggled with for like a couple few years now. Um, and I wish I could come up with like good solid examples for you, but it just seems like no matter what like topic I'm diving into, you know, whether it be sort of, you know, like lately I've kind of been addressing like the male female dichotomy, two sides, same coin, right? The male female energies. And that's yeah, just yeah. one example, right. but equals and opposites, yeah. right? We are not the same, but we are equal and we are you know we're not the same but we are the same which is radical which is radical right 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 paradox it's paradox it's a it's paradoxical but i believe it it can illuminate a lot when we're struggling with these inherent contradictions right like what if the answer is both like yes and you know right well, I agree with you. Like, I'm both then, not either or. Right. Excuse me. Must be catching my secondhand smoke over the internet. <laughs>
Like you got a real fit going now, don't you? Sorry, there, man. Hey, hey, just work it on out, man. No big deal. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm all right. Um, I had that, you know, personal level, I, I sort of encountered that similar question. I was, uh, is it years and years ago, I was dabbling in some martial arts and got um, a book on. Tai Chi Quan, and in the back, there's just an appendix. And at that time, I really hadn't had any uh, exposure to Eastern thought. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the appendix, it talked about the principles of yin and yang. It has like, oh, that is, that, I mean, it that's the so symbol. Sense, that's the symbol right? of dualism, of duality. And, uh, right, right. right. But you'll know that, like, that, that it's important that they have the, that in the, you know, in the black portion, there's, the there is some light in the black. dark and some right. dark in the light. Yes. So, and so that's to Taoism or what have you is, um, I don't care if you call it Taoism or Taoism. It, it's either or, it's which, which is perfect, which is perfect. Cause it's both. And, you know, yeah. Right. So, <laughs> um, but, um, uh, the tea, but anyway, yeah. So, um, but you see, if you had a greater culture, and we should wrap it up here just for time's sake, right? Um, sure. Even though we didn't draw any finance, you know, I think we had lots of useful reflections. Um, but, uh, one thing which we really didn't discuss this, but uh, a problem in the, our moment is a problem of conversation because mm-hmm. there is such a parent divide along ideological lines that have been sort of really rigidified over the past two to three years. It was already there. Mm-hmm. And in the wake of the, 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 the COVID event, whatever you want to call it, I consider it absolutely awful and fundamentally one of the worst things to transpired in human history. I think is a massive deception, mm-hmm. massive deception. Difficult for me to exaggerate the extent of deception involved. Yeah, well, the biggest, the biggest the planet's ever seen. Yeah. Um. But. Uh, If our culture had a greater appreciation of duality, of paradox, of the fundamental manner in which truth is a sign of truth is that it participates in, in both poles of any given proposition, mm-hmm. then you may have a greater capacity for these lines that have been drawn to become more porous and a cooling off because we are coming to a threshold of a cultural conflict that I think should be fundamentally unnecessary and I don't think would be beneficial in, in its outcome for anybody, really. Mm-hmm. Whoever the quote-unquote winner is, there would be no winner to be just losers. So I think that your <laughs> perception... <laughs> 
Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> of a greater appreciation for dualism as is essential is, is quite quite apt. I mean, do you have any thoughts along those lines? Or do you want to elaborate? Yeah. Well, it's like okay, it's like yeah, they they want us to see the division and we see the division it's there i'm not going to say it isn't but there is a duel to that and it's the convergence which which i've been participating in i believe you know i just uh, a week ago two weeks ago went down to tennessee for the self-reliance festival which was an interesting blend yeah i've been to it twice now i actually spoke there this time and um <sighs> You know, it's an interesting convergence of the more like prepper, like doomsday, like sort of what you might think of as generally conservative minded folks and the more like hippie back to the land, like um, burning man, burning man. Yeah. I mean, they're all, people. From, I mean, those hippie, are just two, they're not. It's just, those are just two categories. But like, of course, it's a whole matrix of different types of folks. And everybody's converging on this idea of we need to build resilient community. We need to start producing food. We need to set up local uh, systems of commerce. You know, we need to be able to operate outside of their economy and function within our own agora. And so I think that's just what we need to do. You know, it's like we can get all caught up trying to solve it. We're not going to solve it. You know, it's like, you know, again, like duality, man, like, like Taoism, they say it's like the art of not trying, right? Like Yoda says, you know, like to Luke Skywalker, he says, um, do or do not, there is no try, you know, there is no try like do or do not. And so it's what, uh, it's about what we do and what we don't do, you know, very simply put. And so I think it would be helpful if more people had a grasp of some of these concepts. Right. But like, I think this conversation has been helpful because I almost do think in my advocacy, I'm going to boil it down to three ideas. I think I already have, I just hadn't quantified it, but anarchism, permaculture, duality, you know, because I think that's fairly all encompassing in my mind, um, as far as how to progress, like as a functional framework, you know? Yeah. I, 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 you know, I mean, the, 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 the only has the only thing I would add to that is that the, the, the framework becomes this, you said this already really the fragment, the framework that you're suggesting becomes powerful in terms of action. And then mm -hmm. action in the real and the concrete world. Don't become manacled by the concepts. The concepts could be useful, but ultimately it's about what you do. Mm -hmm. You do or you don't do. And actually, mm -hmm. you know, those are both important. Uh, well, yeah. Like sometimes it's best to do not, right? <laughs> <laughs> if what you might if what you might do is something bad perhaps you should do not like yeah or even sort of more to you know or even 
Just the fact of silence is a decision at times. True. Still not just not just like a silence of refraint, mm-hmm. but just a silence of surrender. Yep. Set let the being up well within you. Well, maybe the missing component of duality that I hadn't really considered much, but is the neutral area in between, right? Like I've heard of this concept of positive chi, negative chi, and neutral chi, where, you know, like positive is the pro and, you know, negative, excuse me, is the anti, like the against, but neutral is like stillness of like, you know, stopping and staying. Well, it's the emptiness, it's the void mm -hmm. within which these things swim, yeah <laughs> we're a couple of hippy dippy motherfuckers man but i your, your kung fu is strong <laughs> hey the force is strong with this one <laughs> oh, man. but yeah no i i think it's good shit man like these are um these are the concepts that we need because like it's easy to people are like just swimming they're overwhelmed they don't know what to do and like i think it helps yeah. to simplify it you know? there, I think there's a lot of fear. Yeah. And uh, that's like a whole other song and dance, right? But all this stuff about you know, these energy crises in Europe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We go on all day about it. Mm -hmm. um, people have to reawaken a sense in their capacity to lead their lives without relying on these structures that are drawing them into these ridiculous unnecessary dramas that have vital stakes vital stakes yeah you know, people's lives are on the line mm -hmm. uh, it's not just and that that fact itself is 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 a scandal that goes under under underappreciated i feel you i feel you yeah you know it's like people say oh maybe we should just move on well that's easier said than done now we need to we need to move forward but i'm not moving on from anything this is all I, i'm yeah, not gonna yeah, it's an important distinction moving I'm not, forward is not moving on yeah huh forgiving no. is not necessarily forgetting bingo bango which is going to say that you don't forgive but it also means that you don't indulge the repetition of errors already perpetrated mm -hmm. agreed well i tell you what man i would love to uh well first i'd love to plug my book did you know oh I yeah absolutely go, go right to it man sorry <laughs> that's cool i got it right here hey duke 2029 by michael t whistler you can get it on amazon it's a just real fun book uh it's a novel kind of semi-future uh, not too far in the future but sort of uh i don't know i'm not going to give too much away but it's uh it's a fun tale it's an adventure it's you know a commentary on every everything <laughs> you know it's written sort of from my perspective but highly highly fictionalized and uh yeah Hey Duke 2029 get it on amazon and the easy peasy podcast i was gonna say man we I remember, you know, I, I couldn't send you video because it was such a huge file, but if you can find a way to send me the audio, I I'd be happy to share this and, you know, plug your channel while we're at it and all I'll that. See if I can figure that out. 
Um, and uh, like I, um, and I'll put links in the description wherever I put this, um, put up on YouTube. I'll probably also put it up on Odyssey and uh, we'll see where I, wherever I can get it up there, I'll get it up there. Well, I might be able to even download it from Odyssey or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, we'll see if we can work that out. Cause I'd like to share it as an episode of the easy peasy podcast too. I think it, it fits the vibe, but um, yeah, I'm glad we can do one for you this time either way. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> yeah, man. All Anytime. right. I'll let you go. All and, right. Uh, I'll be in touch here shortly. Sounds good, Tom. Good hey, to have a good you. night. You too. All right, y'all, what do you think? You know, as usual, I feel like we we hit on some really powerful stuff, but it's almost like it lacks finality. You know, we don't have all the answers, but we're trying to find some. Now, on the note of what we should be doing, what we ought to be doing. I did not end up going to the Covered Bridge Fest as much as I thought it would be cool. You know, maybe we'll do that next fall. But I had to get to work. I went and I got a project started and I'll be finishing it up next week. But over the weekend, I will be in Nashville, Tennessee for a friend's wedding. And truth be told, this is a friend that I have not talked to a whole lot over the last few years. Now I've talked to a few other friends within this same circle. And I'll be honest, there's a couple of fellas at the wedding who the last words we exchanged were heated and over social media about COVID and other related topics. You know, this is a group of, of guys that used to be really, really tight. And this will be the first time we've seen each other since all this craziness. And I hope there's no hard feelings. You know, I, I fully expect to show up and for us to, to just celebrate, right? To have a good time. And I hope no drama unfolds. But I know that there's a bit of uh, tension between, you know, let's just say a couple of the guys that are going to be there and myself. But I know that I should go and see my friend get married, right? I understand the importance. It's like weddings and funerals, man. Those are things you should go to if you feel inclined. You need to bear witness. You know, I've mentioned it before, but I am salty as hell that I was not allowed to I was not allowed to participate in my own grandfather's burial ceremony. And it's fucking shameful. I should have been there. 
along with the rest of his grandchildren and great-grandchildren, but we were not allowed. We were not invited. But since I got invited to my friend's wedding, I will go. You know, to date, I have not missed a friend's wedding. Now, whether or not I can carry that that record forward, we'll see. You know, people sometimes get married in faraway places, but luckily, Nashville, Tennessee ain't too far away. So I'm doing what I should. And I'm going to support my friend as he makes his vows to his woman and becomes her husband officially. You know, that's something I wouldn't miss for nothing. Even if there's a little awkwardness amongst a couple of the folks that might be there, I don't care, right? I am going there to support my friend. And on the counter side, you know, I mentioned it earlier, but another friend of mine just got left by his wife, right? And him and I were texting yesterday, you know, basically she finally came clean and admitted to cheating. And he was texting me, I could tell he was just, just broken, you know, just fully just in despair, feeling less than, despite the fact that he is a good husband and a good father, it, apparently it wasn't enough for his wife. And I think it's a common tale. But again, it's not my relationship. I can't claim to know all the details. But from my perspective, you know, I'll just say I feel for that guy. I feel for him because you know, even though he's not Prince Charming, he's a pretty damn good you know, catch. He's a man. He's a real man. And he supports his family and he cares for his children and he loves them and he loves his wife. Even though she doesn't love him back. And it's sad. In some ways it's infuriating. You know, he told me himself, he says, I'm just so angry. Because he's been faithful and supportive and loving and available and she has not she's been fucking around with some other guy and it's it's a betrayal so there's no question there's no wonder that he is angry and upset and I told him I said I don't have any any words of comfort, but do your best to be there for your daughters. If you need to, go out into the woods with an axe or a, a couple of firearms and just, just obliterate something. 
pick out a tree and destroy it. If that makes you feel better, just don't go to jail. You know, he said, I'm, I'm going to hit the bar. I'm going to go have some drinks. I said, all right, you know, do what you got to do, but don't go to jail. You don't need that on top of everything else. But, you know, maybe you ought to go out and chop down a tree. Release some of your anger. Because it's not going to go away. But you can at least channel it and release it in a way that's not so destructive. You know, don't go picking fights. Don't go tracking down the guy that your wife has been fucking around with and beating him up or whatever. As much as you might want to, that won't do you any good. I said, go fuck up a tree. Even though I love trees, you know. Beauty is, there's a whole lot of trees in the forest. And if you chop one down, another's going to come up. And if that's what he needs, I think that's what he should do. But it's funny. I mean, it's not funny. It's the furthest thing from funny. It's just (sighs) sort of notable that I'm going to see one relationship, you know, be solidified in a way, be legitimized, be, you know, made legal, even though I don't care for marriage license, you know, that's, it's a, it's an important thing. If you choose to do that, that's a statement. That's a contract. So I'm going to see this this ceremony where two people will officially become married while simultaneously another friend is having his marriage fall apart. And I don't have any answers as usual. But I know that what I should do is be available to both of these guys who I am friends with and have been for quite some time. You know, I, I'd like to think, despite my own flaws, I am a loyal individual. And that doesn't necessarily mean everybody's going to show the same loyalty back. You know, part of me thinks I might be a black sheep at this wedding, and that's fine. I will sit there and enjoy my dinner and my drinks, and I will have as good a time as I can. And who knows, you know, these 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 dramas, these tensions between me and a couple of the other folks who will be there, I hope that they are resolved with a handshake or a hug. And that we can all just enjoy being friends once more. You know, I won't hold anything against anyone if they don't hold anything against me. It's been a crazy couple of years. And I hope we can all just do what we should. Come together and celebrate the good things. Or come together to make it through the hardships It's no different. It's a matter of loyalty. It's a matter of doing what you should do. So with that, I thank you 
for listening to episode 102. If you would like to donate to the Easy Peasy podcast, please go to easypeasygardens.com slash donate. Thanks for listening.